This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. Chapter 15. Tom as King. The next day the foreign ambassadors came with their gorgeous trains, and Tom, throned in awful state, received them. The splendors of the scene delighted his eye and fired his imagination at first, but the audience was long and dreary, and so were most of the addresses. Wherefore, what began as a pleasure grew into weariness and homesickness by and by. Tom said the words which Hartford put into his mouth from time to time, and tried hard to acquit himself satisfactorily. But he was too new to such things, and too ill at ease to accomplish more than a tolerable success. He looked sufficiently like a king, but he was ill able to feel like one. He was cordially glad when the ceremony was ended. The larger part of his day was wasted, as he termed it in his own mind, in labors pertaining to his royal office. Even the two hours devoted to certain princely pastimes and recreations were rather a burden to him than otherwise. They were so fettered by restrictions and ceremonious observances. However, he had a private hour with his whipping-boy, which he counted clear gain, since he got both entertainment and needful information out of it. The third day of Tom Canty's kingship came and went much as the others had done, but there was a lifting of his cloud in one way. He felt less uncomfortable than at first. He was getting a little used to his circumstances and surroundings. His change still galled, but not all the time. He found that the presence and homage of the great afflicted and embarrassed him less and less sharply with every hour that drifted over his head. But for one single dread he could have seen the fourth day approach without serious distress—the dining in public. It was to begin that day. There were greater matters in the program, for on that day he would have to preside at a council which would take his views and commands concerning the policy to be pursued toward various foreign nations scattered far and near over the great globe. On that day, too, Hartford would be formally chosen to the grand office of Lord Protector. Other things of note were appointed for that fourth day also, but to Tom they were all insignificant compared with the ordeal of dining all by himself with a multitude of curious eyes fastened upon him, and a multitude of mouths whispering comments upon his performance, and upon his mistakes, if he should be so unlucky as to make any. Still nothing could stop that fourth day, and so it came. It found poor Tom low-spirited and absent-minded, and this mood continued. He could not shake it off. The ordinary duties of the morning dragged upon his hands and wearied him. Once more he felt the sense of captivity heavy upon him. Late in the forenoon he was in a large audience-chamber conversing with the Earl of Hertford, and dully awaiting the striking of the hour appointed for a visit of ceremony from a considerable number of great officials and courtiers. After a little while Tom, who had wandered to a window and become interested in the life and movement of the great highway beyond the palace gates, and not idly interested, but longing with all his heart to take part in person in its stir and freedom, saw the van of a hooting and shouting mob of disorderly men, women, and children of the lowest and poorest degree approaching from up the road. "'I would I knew what tis about!' he exclaimed, with all a boy's curiosity in such happenings. "'Thou art king,' solemnly responded the earl with a reverence. "'Have I your grace's leave to act?' "'Oh, blithely, yes! Oh, gladly, yes!' exclaimed Tom excitedly. 
adding to himself, with a lively sense of satisfaction, in truth being a king is not all dreariness, it hath its compensations and conveniences. The earl called a page, and sent him to the captain of the guard with the order, Let the mob be halted, and inquiry made concerning the occasion of its movement, by the king's command. A few seconds later a long rank of the royal guards, cased in flashing steel, filed out at the gates and formed across the highway in front of the multitude. A messenger returned to report that the crowd were following a man, a woman, and a young girl to execution for crimes committed against the peace and dignity of the realm. Death, and a violent death, for these poor unfortunates! The thought wrung Tom's heart-strings. The spirit of compassion took control of him, to the exclusion of all other considerations. He never thought of the offended laws, or of the grief or loss which these three criminals had inflicted upon their victims, he could think of nothing but the scaffold and the grisly fate hanging over the heads of the condemned. His concern even made him forget for the moment that he was but the false shadow of a king, not the substance, and before he knew it he had blurted out the command, "'Bring them here!' Then he flushed scarlet, and a sort of apology sprung to his lips. But observing that his order had wrought no sort of a surprise in the earl or the waiting page, he suppressed the words he was about to utter. The page, in the most matter-of-course way, made a profound obeisance, and retired backwards out of the room to deliver the command. Tom experienced a glow of pride, and a renewed sense of the compensating advantages of the kingly office. He said to himself, "'Truly it is like what I was used to feel when I read the old priest's tales, and did imagine mine own self a prince, giving law and command to all, saying, Do this, do that, whilst none durst offer let or hindrance to my will.' Now the doors swung open, one high-sounding title after another was announced, the personages owning them followed, and the place was quickly half-filled with noble folk and finery. But Tom was hardly conscious of the presence of these people, so wrought up was he, and so intensely absorbed in that other and more interesting matter. He seated himself absently in his chair of state, and turned his eyes upon the door with manifestations of impatient expectancy, seeing which the company forbore to trouble him, and fell to chatting a mixture of public business and court gossip one with another. In a little while the measured tread of military men was heard approaching, and the culprits entered the presence in charge of an under-sheriff, and escorted by a detail of the King's Guard. The civil officer knelt before Tom, then stood aside. The three doomed persons knelt also, and remained so. The guard took position behind Tom's chair. Tom scanned the prisoners curiously. Something about the dress or appearance of the man had stirred a vague memory in him. "'Methinks I have seen this man ere now, but the when or the where fail me,' such was Tom's thought. Just then the man glanced meekly up, and quickly dropped his face again, not being able to endure the awful port of sovereignty. But the one full glimpse of the face which Tom got was sufficient. He said to himself, "'Now is the matter clear. This is the stranger that plucked Gill's wit out of the Thames, and saved his life, that windy, bitter first day of the new year. A brave good deed!' Pity he hath been doing baser ones, and got himself in this sad case. I have not forgot the day, neither the hour, by reason that an hour after, upon the stroke of eleven, I did get a hiding by the hand of Gamerganti, which is of so goodly and admired severity that all that went before or followed after it were but fondlings and caress by comparison. Tom now ordered that the woman and the girl be removed from the presence for a little time, then addressed himself to the undersheriff, saying, "'Good sir!' What is this man's offence?" The officer knelt, and answered, 
"'So please your majesty, he hath taken the life of a subject by poison.' Tom's compassion for the prisoner and admiration of him as the daring rescuer of a drowning boy experienced a most damaging shock. "'The thing was proven upon him?' he asked. "'Most clearly, sire.' Tom sighed, and said, "'Take him away. He hath earned his death. Tis a pity, for he was a brave heart. Nana, I mean, he hath the look of it.' The prisoner clasped his hands together with sudden energy, and wrung them despairingly, at the same time appealing imploringly to the king, in broken and terrified phrases. O oh, my lord, the king, and thou canst pity the lost, have pity upon me. I am innocent, neither hath that wherewith I am charged been more than but lamely proved. Yet I speak not of that. The judgment is gone forth against me, and may not suffer alteration. Yet in mine extremity I beg a boon, for my doom is more than I can bear. A grace, a grace, my lord the king, in thy royal compassion grant me my prayer. Give commandment that I be hanged." Tom was amazed. This was not the outcome he had looked for. "'Odds my life a strange boon! Was it not the fate intended thee?' "'Oh, good, my liege, not so! It is ordered that I be boiled alive!' The hideous surprise of these words almost made Tom spring from his chair. As soon as he could recover his wits, he cried out, "'Have thy wish, poor soul! and thou had poisoned a hundred men, thou shouldst not suffer so miserable a death." The prisoner bowed his face to the ground, and burst into passionate expressions of gratitude, ending with, "'If ever thou shouldst know misfortune which God forfend, may thy goodness to me this day be remembered and requited.' Tom turned to the Earl of Hertford, and said, "'My lord, is it believable that there was warrant for this man's ferocious doom?' "'It is the law, your grace, for poisoners. In Germany coiners be boiled to death in oil, not cast in of a sudden, but by a rope let down into the oil by degrees, and slowly. First the feet, then the legs, then—oh, prithee, no more, my lord, I cannot bear it!' cried Tom, covering his eyes with his hands to shut out the picture. "'I beseech your good lordship that order be taken to change this law. Oh, let no more poor creatures be visited with its tortures!' The Earl's face showed profound gratification, for he was a man of merciful and generous impulses, a thing not very common with his class in that fierce age. He said, "'These, your Grace's noble words, have sealed its doom. History will remember it to the honour of your royal house.' The under-sheriff was about to remove his prisoner. Tom gave him a sign to wait, and then he said, "'Good sir, I would look into this matter further. The man has said his deed was but lamely proved. Tell me what thou knowest. If the king's grace please, it did appear upon the trial that this man entered into a house in the hamlet of Islington, where one lay sick. Three witnesses say it was at ten of the clock in the morning, and two say it was some minutes later, the sick man being alone at the time and sleeping. And presently the man came forth again, and went his way. The sick man died within the hour, being torn with spasms and retchings. Did any see the poison given? Was poison found? Marry, no, my liege. Then how doth one know there was poison given at all? Please, your majesty, the doctors testified that none die with such symptoms but by poison. Weighty evidence this, in that simple age, Tom recognized its formidable nature, and said, The doctor knoweth his trade, belike they were right. The matter hath an ill look for this poor man. 
yet was not this all your majesty there is more and worse many testified that a witch since gone from the village none know whither did foretell and speak it privately in their ears that the sick man would die by poison and more that a stranger would give it a stranger with brown hair and clothed in a worn and common garb and surely this prisoner doth answer woundily to the bill please your majesty to give this circumstance that solemn weight which is its due seeing it was foretold this was an argument of tremendous force in that superstitious day tom felt that the thing was settled if evidence was worth anything this poor fellow's guilt was proved still he offered the prisoner a chance saying if thou canst say aught in thyself speak not that will avail my king i am innocent yet cannot i make it appear i have no friends else might i show that i was not in islington that day so also might i show that at that hour they name i was above a league away seeing i was at wapping old stairs yea more my king for i could show that whilst they say i was taking life i was saving it a drowning boy peace sheriff name the day the deed was done at ten in the morning or some minutes later the first day of the new year most illustrious let the prisoner go free it's the king's will another blush followed this unregal outburst and he covered his indecorum as well as he could by adding it enrageth me that a man should be hanged upon such idle hair-brained evidence a low buzz of admiration swept through the assemblage it was not admiration of the decree that had been delivered by tom for the propriety or expediency of pardoning a convicted poisoner was a thing which few there would have felt justified in either admitting or admiring no the admiration was for the intelligence and spirit which tom had displayed some of the low-voiced remarks were to this effect this is no mad king he hath his wits sound how sanely he puts his questions how like his former natural self was this abrupt imperious disposal of the matter god be thanked his infirmity is spent this is no weakling but a king he hath borne himself like to his own father the air being filled with applause tom's ear necessarily caught a little of it the effect which this had upon him was to put him greatly at his ease and also to charge his system with very gratifying sensations however his juvenile curiosity soon rose superior to these pleasant thoughts and feelings he was eager to know what sort of a deadly mischief the woman and the little girl could have been about so by his command the two terrified and sobbing creatures were brought before him what is it that these have done he inquired of the sheriff please your majesty a black crime is charged upon them and clearly proven wherefore the judges have decreed according to the law that they be hanged they sold themselves to the devil such is their crime tom shuddered he had been taught to abhor people who did this wicked thing still he was not going to deny himself the pleasure of feeding his curiosity for all that so he asked where was this done and when on a midnight in december in a ruined church your majesty tom shuddered again who was there present only these two your grace and that other have these confessed nay not so sire they do deny it then prithee how was it known certain witnesses did see them wending thither good your majesty this bred the suspicion 
and dire effects have since confirmed and justified it. In particular, it is in evidence that through the wicked power so obtained, they did invoke and bring about a storm that wasted all the region round about. Above forty witnesses have proved the storm, and sooth one might have had a thousand, for all had reason to remember it, sith all had suffered by it. Certes, this is serious matter. Tom turned this dark piece of scoundrelism over in his mind a while, and then asked, Suffered the woman also by the storm? Several old heads among the assemblage nodded their recognition of the wisdom of this question. The sheriff, however, saw nothing consequential in the inquiry. He answered with simple directness, Indeed did she, your majesty, and most righteously, as all of our, her habitation was swept away, and herself and child left shelterless. Methinks the power to do herself so ill a turn was dearly bought. She had been cheated, had she paid but a farthing for it. That she paid her soul and her child's, argueth that she is mad. If she is mad, she knoweth not what she doth. Therefore sinneth not." The elderly heads nodded recognition of Tom's wisdom once more, and one individual murmured, "'And the king be mad himself, according to report, then it is a madness of a sort that would improve the sanity of some I wot of, if by the gentle providence of God they could but catch it.' "'What age hath the child?' asked Tom. Nine years, please, your majesty.' "'By the law of England may a child enter into covenant and sell itself, my lord?' asked Tom, turning to a learned judge. "'The law doth not permit a child to make or meddle in any weighty matter, good my liege, holding that its callow wit unfitteth it to cope with the riper wit and evil schemings of them that are its elders. The devil may buy a child, if he so choose, and the child agree thereto, but not an Englishman.' In this latter case the contract would be null and void. It seemeth a rude unchristian thing, and ill-contrived, that English law denieth privileges to Englishmen to waste them on the devil," cried Tom, with honest heat. This novel view of the matter excited many smiles, and was stored away in many heads to be repeated about the court as evidence of Tom's originality, as well as progress toward mental health. The elder culprit had ceased from sobbing, and was hanging upon Tom's words with an excited interest and a growing hope. Tom noticed this, and it strongly inclined his sympathies toward her, in her perilous and unfriended situation. Presently he asked, "'How wrought they to bring the storm?' "'By pulling off their stockings, sire!' This astonished Tom, and also fired his curiosity to fever heat. He said eagerly, it is wonderful. Hath it always this dread effect? Always, my liege, at least if the woman doth desire it, and utter the needful words, either in her mind or with her tongue. Tom turned to the woman, and said with impetuous zeal, Exert thy power. I would see a storm. There was a sudden paling of cheeks in the superstitious assemblage, and a general, though unexpressed, desire to get out of the place, all of which was lost upon Tom, who was dead to everything but the proposed cataclysm. Seeing a puzzled and astonished look in the woman's face, he added excitedly, "'Never fear, thou shalt be blameless. More, thou shalt go free. None shall touch thee. Exert thy power.' "'Oh, my lord, the king, I have it not. I have been falsely accused.' Thy fears stay thee. Be of good heart, thou shalt suffer no harm. Make a storm. It mattereth not how small a one. I require not great or harmful, but indeed prefer the opposite. Do this, and thy life is spared. 
thou shalt go out free, with thy child, bearing the king's pardon, and safe from hurt or malice from any in the realm." The woman prostrated herself, and protested with tears that she had no power to do the miracle, else she would gladly win her child's life alone, and be content to lose her own, if by obedience to the king's command so precious a grace might be acquired. Tom urged. The woman still adhered to her declarations. Finally he said, I think the woman hath said true, and my mother were in her place, and gifted with the devil's functions. She had not stayed a moment to call her storms, and lay the whole land in ruins, if the saving of my forfeit life were the price she got. It is argument that other mothers are made in like mould. Thou art free, good wife, thou and thy child, for I do think thee innocent. Now thou'st naught to fear being pardoned. Pull off thy stockings, and thou canst make me a storm. Thou shalt be rich." The redeemed creature was loud in her gratitude, and proceeded to obey, whilst Tom looked on with eager expectancy, a little marred by apprehension, the courtiers at the same time manifesting decided discomfort and uneasiness. The woman stripped her own feet and her little girl's also, and plainly did her best to reward the king's generosity with an earthquake. But it was all a failure and a disappointment. Tom sighed and said, "'There, good soul, trouble thyself no further. Thy power is departed out of thee. Go thy way in peace, and if it return to thee at any time, forget me not, but fetch me a storm.'" Footnote. Character of Hertford The young king discovered an extreme attachment to his uncle, who was, in the main, a man of moderation and probity. Hume's History of England, Volume 3, page 324. But if he, the protector, gave offence by assuming too much state, he deserves great praise on account of the laws passed this session, by which the rigour of former statutes was much mitigated, and some security given to the freedom of the Constitution. All laws were repealed which extended the crime of treason beyond the statute of the twenty-fifth of Edward III. All laws enacted during the late reign extending the crime of felony, all the former laws against lollardy or heresy, together with the statute of the six articles, none were to be accused for words, but within a month after they were spoken. By these repeals several of the most rigorous laws that ever passed in England were annulled, and some dawn, both of civil and religious liberty, began to appear to the people. A repeal also passed of that law, the destruction of all laws, by which the King's proclamation was made of equal force with a statute. Ibid, Volume 3, page 339. End of chapter 15. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE PRINCE AND THE PAUPER by Mark Twain CHAPTER Sixteen, THE STATE DINNER The dinner hour drew near, yet strangely enough the thought brought but slight discomfort to Tom, and hardly any terror. The morning's experiences had wonderfully built up his confidence. The poor little ash-cat was already more wanted to his strange garret after four days' habit than a mature person could have become in a full month. A child's facility in accommodating itself to circumstances was never more strikingly illustrated. Let us privileged ones hurry to the great banqueting-room, and have a glance at matters there, whilst Tom is being made ready for the imposing occasion. It is a spacious apartment, with gilded pillars and pilasters, and pictured walls and ceilings. 
At the door stand tall guards, as rigid as statues, dressed in rich and picturesque costumes, and bearing halberds. In a high gallery which runs all around the place is a band of musicians and a packed company of citizens of both sexes in brilliant attire. In the center of the room, upon a raised platform, is Tom's table. Now let the ancient chronicler speak. A gentleman enters the room bearing a rod, and along with him another bearing a tablecloth, which, after they have both kneeled three times with the utmost veneration, he spreads upon the table, and, after kneeling again, they both retire. They come two others, one with a rod again, the other with a salt-cellar, a plate, and bread. When they have kneeled, as the others had done, and placed what was brought upon the table, they too retire with the same ceremonies performed by the first. At last come two nobles, richly clothed, one bearing a tasting-knife, who, after prostrating themselves three times in the most graceful manner, approach and rub the table with bread and salt, with as much awe as if the king had been present. Footnote. Lee Hunts the Town, page 408, quotation from an early tourist. End of footnote. So end the solemn preliminaries. Now, far down the echoing corridors, we hear a bugle-blast, and the indistinct cry, "'Place for the King! Way for the King's Most Excellent Majesty!' These sounds are momently repeated, they grow nearer and nearer, and pleasantly, almost in our faces, the martial note peals, and the cry rings out, "'Way for the King!' At this instant the shining pageant appears, and files in at the door, with a measured march. Let the chronicler speak again. First come gentlemen, barons, earls, knights of the garter, all richly dressed and bareheaded. Next comes the chancellor, between two, one of which carries the royal sceptre, the other the sword of state in a red scabbard, studded with golden fleur-de-lis, the point upwards. Next comes the king himself, whom, upon his appearing, twelve trumpets and many drums salute with a great burst of welcome, whilst all in the galleries rise in their places, crying, God save the king! After him come nobles attached to his person, and on his right and left march his guard of honor, his fifty gentlemen pensioners, with gilt battle-axes. This was all fine and pleasant. Tom's pulse beat high, and a glad light was in his eye. He bore himself right gracefully, and all the more so because he was not thinking of how he was doing it, his mind being charmed and occupied with the blithe sights and sounds about him. And besides, nobody can be very ungraceful in nicely fitting beautiful clothes after he has grown a little used to them, especially if he is for the moment unconscious of them. Tom remembered his instructions, and acknowledged his greeting with a slight inclination of his plumed head and a courteous, "'I thank ye, my good people.' He seated himself at table, without removing his cap, and did it without the least embarrassment, for to eat with one's cap on was the one solitary royal custom upon which the kings and the cantes met as upon common ground, neither party having any advantage over the other in the matter of old familiarity with it. The pageant broke up, and grouped itself picturesquely, and remained bare-headed. Now, to the sound of gay music, the yeomen of the guard entered. The tallest and mightiest men in England, they being carefully selected in this regard. But we will let the chronicler tell about it. 
the yeomen of the guard entered, bareheaded, clothed in scarlet, with golden roses upon their backs, and these went and came, bringing in each turn a course of dishes, served in plate. These dishes were received by a gentleman in the same order they were brought, and placed upon the table, while the taster gave to each guard a mouthful to eat of the particular dish he had brought, for fear of any poison. Tom made a good dinner, notwithstanding he was conscious that hundreds of eyes followed each morsel to his mouth and watched him eat it with an interest which could not have been more intense if it had been a deadly explosive, and was expected to blow him up and scatter him all about the place. He was careful not to hurry, and equally careful not to do anything whatever for himself, but wait till the proper official knelt down and did it for him. He got through without a mistake, a flawless and precious triumph. When the meal was over at last, and he marched away in the midst of his bright pageant, with the happy noises in his ears of blaring bugles, rolling drums, and thundering acclamations, he felt that if he had seen the worst of dining in public, it was an ordeal which he would be glad to endure several times a day, if by that means he could but buy himself free from some of the more formidable requirements of his royal office. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 Foo-Foo the First. Miles Hendon hurried along toward the southwark end of the bridge, keeping a sharp lookout for the persons he sought, and hoping and expecting to overtake them presently. He was disappointed in this, however. By asking questions he was enabled to track them part of the way through Southwark, then all traces ceased, and he was perplexed as to how to proceed. Still he continued his efforts as best he could during the rest of the day. Nightfall found him leg-weary, half-famished, and his desire as far from accomplishment as ever. So he supped at the tabard inn, and went to bed, resolved to make an early start in the morning and give the town an exhaustive search. As he lay thinking and planning, he presently began to reason thus. The boy would escape from the ruffian, his reputed father, if possible. Would he go back to London and seek his former haunts? No, he would not do that. He would avoid recapture. What, then, would he do? Never having had a friend in the world or a protector until he met Miles Hendon, he would naturally try to find that friend again, provided the effort did not require him to go toward London and danger. He would strike for Hendon Hall. That is what he would do. For he knew Hendon was homeward bound, and there he might expect to find him. Yes, the case was plain to Hendon. He must lose no more time in Southwark, but move at once through Ghent toward Monk's home searching the wood and inquiring as he went. Let us return to the vanished little king now. The ruffian, whom the waiter at the inn on the bridge saw about to join the youth and the king, did not exactly join them, but fell in close behind them and followed their steps. He said nothing. His left arm was in a sling, and he wore a large green patch over his left eye. He limped slightly, and used an oaken staff as a support. The youth led the king a crooked course through Southwark, and by and by struck into High Road beyond. The king was irritated now, and said he would stop here. It was Hendon's place to come to him, not his to go to Hendon. He would not endure such insolence. He would stop where he was. The youth said, "'Thou tarry here, and thy friend lying wounded in the wood yonder? So be it, then.' The king's manner changed at once, and he cried out, "'Wounded? And who hath dared to do it?' But that is a part. Lead on, lead on, faster, sirrah. Art shod with lead? Wounded is he? Now, though the doer of it be a duke's son, he shall rue it. It was some distance to the wood, but the space was speedily traversed. 
the youth looked about him, discovered a bow sticking in the ground, with a small bit of rag tied to it, then led the way into the forest watching for similar bows and finding them at intervals. They were evidently guides to the point he was aiming at. By and by an open place was reached, where were the charred remains of a farmhouse, and near them a barn which was falling to ruin and decay. There was no sign of life anywhere, and utter silence prevailed. The youth entered the barn, the king following eagerly upon his heels. No one there. The king shot a surprised and suspicious glance at the youth, and asked, "'Where is he?' A mocking laugh was his answer. The king was in a rage in a moment. He seized a billet of wood, and was in the act of charging upon the youth, when another mocking laugh fell upon his ear. It was from the lame ruffian, who had been following at a distance. The king turned, and said angrily, "'Who art thou? What is thy business here?' "'Leave thy foolery,' said the man, "'and quiet thyself. My disguise is none so good that thou canst pretend thou knowest not thy father through it. Thou art not my father. I know thee not. I am the king. If thou hast hid my servant, find him for me, or thou shalt sup sorrow for what thou hast done.' John Canty replied, in a stern and measured voice, "'It is plain thou art mad, and I am loath to punish thee. But if thou provoke me, I must.' Thy prating doth no harm here, where there are no ears that need to mind thy follies. Yet is it well to practice thy tongue to wary speech, that it may do no hurt, when our quarters change. I have done a murder, and may not tarry at home, neither shalt thou, seeing I need thy service. My name is changed, for wise reasons. It is Hobbes, John Hobbes. Thine is Jack. Charge thy memory accordingly. Now then, speak. Where is thy mother? Where are thy sisters? They came not to the place appointed. Knowst thou whither they went?" The king answered sullenly, "'Trouble me not with these riddles. My mother is dead. My sisters are in the palace.' The youth nearby burst into a derisive laugh, and the king would have assaulted him. But Canty, or Hobbes, as he now called himself, prevented him, and said, "'Peace, Hugo, vex him not. His mind is astray, and thy ways fret him. Sit thee down, Jack, and quiet thyself. Thou shalt have a morsel to eat anon." Hobbes and Hugo fell to talking together in low voices, and the king removed himself as far as he could from their disagreeable company. He withdrew into the twilight of the farther end of the barn. When he found the earthen floor bedded a foot deep with straw, he lay down here, drew straw over himself in lieu of blankets, and was soon absorbed in thinkings. He had many griefs but the minor ones were swept almost into forgetfulness by the supreme one, the loss of his father. To the rest of the world the name of Henry the Eighth brought a shiver, and suggested an ogre whose nostrils breathed destruction, and whose hand dealt scourgings and death. But to this boy the name brought only sensations of pleasure. The figure it invoked wore a countenance that was all gentleness and affection. He called to mind a long succession of loving passages between his father and himself and dwelt fondly upon them, his unstinted tears attesting how deep and real was the grief that possessed his heart. As the afternoon wasted away, the lad, wearied with his troubles, sank gradually into a tranquil and healing slumber. After a considerable time—he could not tell how long—his senses struggled to a half-consciousness, and as he lay with closed eyes, vaguely wondering where he was and what had been happening, he noted a murmurous sound the sullen beating of rain upon the roof. A snug sense of comfort stole over him, which was rudely broken, the next moment, by a chorus of piping cackles and coarse laughter. It startled him disagreeably, and he unmuffled his head to see whence this interruption proceeded. 
A grim and unsightly picture met his eye. A bright fire was burning in the middle of the floor at the other end of the barn, and around it, and lit weirdly up by the red glare, lolled and sprawled the motliest company of tattered gutter-scum and ruffians of both sexes he had ever read or dreamed of. There were huge, stalwart men, brown with exposure, long-haired, and clothed in fantastic rags. There were middle-sized youths, of truculent countenance, and similarly clad. There were blind mendicants with patched or bandaged eyes, crippled ones with wooden legs and crutches. There was a villain-looking peddler with his pack, a knife-grinder, a tinker, and a barber-surgeon with the implements of their trades. Some of the females were hardly grown girls. Some were at prime, some were old and wrinkled hags, and all were loud, brazen, foul-mouthed, and all soiled and slatternly. There were three sore-faced babies, there were a couple of starveling curs with strings about their necks, whose office was to lead the blind. The night was come, the gang had just finished feasting, an orgy was beginning, the can of liquor was passing from mouth to mouth. A general cry broke forth, A song! A song from the bat and Dick Dotton go one! One of the blind men got up, and made ready by casting aside the patches that sheltered his excellent eyes and the pathetic placard which recited the cause of his calamity. Dot-and-go-one disencumbered himself of his timber-leg, and took his place upon sound and healthy limbs, beside his fellow-rascal. Then they roared out a rollicking ditty, and were reinforced by the whole crew at the end of each stanza in a rousing chorus. By the time the last stanza was reached, the half-drunken enthusiasm had risen to such a pitch that everybody joined in and sang it clear through from the beginning, producing a volume of villainous sound that made the rafters quake. These were the inspiring words. Bein darkmans then, bows, mort, and ken, the bein coves beings awast, on chaties to trine by Rome coves dine, for his long lib at last. Binged out bein morts and tour and tour, bing out of the Rome vile bine, and tour the cove that cloyed your duds upon the chaties to trine. Footnote from the English Rogue, London, sixteen sixty five. End of footnote. Conversation followed, not in the thieves' dialect of the song, for that was only used in talk when unfriendly ears might be listening. In the course of it it appeared that John Hobbs was not altogether a new recruit, but had trained in the gang at some former time. His later history was called for, and when he said he had accidentally killed a man, considerable satisfaction was expressed. When he added that the man was a priest, he was roundly applauded, and had to take a drink with everybody. Old acquaintances welcomed him joyously, and new ones were proud to shake him by the hand. He was asked why he had tarried away so many months. He answered, London is better than the country, and safer these late years. The laws be so bitter and so diligently enforced, and I had not had that accident, I had stayed there. I had resolved to stay, and never more venture countrywards. But the accident has ended that." He inquired how many persons the gang numbered now. The ruffler, or chief, answered, Five and twenty sturdy budges, bulks, files, clapper and maunders counting the dells and doxies and other morts. Footnote. Canting terms for various kinds of thieves, beggars, and vagabonds, and their female companions. End of footnote. Most are here, the rest are wandering eastward along the winter lay. We follow at dawn. I do not see the when among the honest folk about me. Where may he be? 
Poor lad, his diet is brimstone now, and over-hot for a delicate taste. He was killed in a brawl somewhere about midsummer. I sorrow to hear that. The wen was a capable man and brave. That was he truly. Black Bess, his dell, is of us yet, but absent on the eastward tramp. A fine lass, of nice ways and orderly conduct, none ever seeing her drunk above four days in the seven. She was ever strict, I remember it well, a goodly wench and worthy all commendation. Her mother was more free and less particular, a troublesome and ugly-tempered beldame, but furnished with a wit above the common. We lost her through it. Her gift of palmistry and other sorts of fortune-telling begot for her at last a witch's name and fame. The law roasted her to death at a slow fire. It did touch me to a sort of tenderness to see the gallant way she met her lot, cursing and rivaling all the crowd that gaped and gazed around her, whilst the flames licked upward toward her face and catched her thin locks and crackled about her old gray head. "'Cursing them?' said I. "'Cursing them! Why, and thou wouldst live a thousand years, thou'dst never hear so masterful a cursing. Alack, her art died with her. There be base and weakling imitations left, but no true blasphemy." The ruffler sighed. The listeners sighed in sympathy. A general depression fell upon the company for a moment, for even hardened outcasts like these are not wholly dead to sentiment, but are able to feel a fleeting sense of loss and affliction at wide intervals and under peculiarly favoring circumstances, as in cases like to this, for instance, when genius and culture depart and leave no heir. However, a deep drink all round soon restored the spirits of the mourners. "'Have any others of our friends fared hardly?' asked Hobbs. "'Some, yes, particularly newcomers, such as small husbandmen, turned shiftless and hungry upon the world because their farms were taken from them and to be changed to sheep-ranges. They begged and were whipped at the cart's tail, naked from the girdle up, till the blood ran, then set in the stocks to be pelted. They begged again, were whipped again, and deprived of an ear. They begged a third time, poor devils, what else could they do, and were branded on the cheek with a red-hot iron then sold for slaves. They ran away, were hunted down, and hanged. Tis a brief tale, and quickly told. Others of us have fared less hardly. Stand forth, Yokel, Burns, and Hodge. Show your adornments." These stood up, and stripped away some of their rags, exposing their backs, criss-crossed with ropey old welts left by the lash. One turned up his hair, and showed the place where a left ear had once been. Another showed a brand upon his shoulder the letter V, and a mutilated ear. The third said, I am Yokel, once a farmer and prosperous, with loving wife and kids. Now am I somewhat different in estate and calling, and the wife and kids are gone. Mayhap they are in heaven, mayhap in, in the other place. But the kindly God be thanked, they bide no more in England. My good old blameless mother strove to earn bread by nursing the sick. One of these died, the doctors knew not how, so my mother was burnt for a witch, whilst my babes looked on and wailed English law. Up all with your cups, now all together and with a cheer. Drink to the merciful English law that delivered her from the English hell. Thank you, mates, one and all. I begged from house to house, I and the wife, bearing with us the hungry kids, but it was crime to be hungry in England, so they stripped us and lashed us through three towns. Drink ye all again to the merciful English law. 
for its lash drank deep of my Mary's blood, and its blessed deliverance came quick. She lies there in the potter's field, safe from all harms. And the kids—well, whilst the law lashed me from town to town, they starved. Drink, lads, only a drop, a drop to the poor kids, that never did any creature harm. I begged again, begged for a crust, and got the stocks and lost an ear. See, here bides the stump. I begged again, and here's the stump of the other to keep me minded of it. And still I begged again, and was sold for a slave. Here on my cheek under this stain, if I washed it off, ye might see the red S, the branding iron left there. A slave. Do ye understand that word? An English slave. That is he that stands before ye. I have run from my master, and when I am found, the heavy curse of heaven fall on the law and the land that hath commanded it, I shall hang. Footnote. Enslaving. So young a king and so ignorant a peasant were likely to make mistakes, and this is an instance in point. The peasant was suffering from this law by anticipation. The king was venting his indignation against a law which was not yet in existence. For this hideous statute was to have birth in this little king's own reign. However, we know from the humanity of his character that it could never have been suggested by him. End of footnote. A ringing voice came through the murky air. Thou shalt not! And this day the end of that law is come! All turned and saw the fantastic figure of the little king approaching hurriedly. As it emerged into the light and was clearly revealed, a general explosion of inquiries broke out. Who is it? What is it? Who art thou, mannequin? The boy stood unconfused in the midst of all those surprised and questioning eyes, and answered with princely dignity, I am Edward, King of England. A wild burst of laughter followed, partly of derision and partly of delight in the excellence of the joke. The King was stung. He said sharply, Ye mannerless vagrants, is this your recognition of the royal boon I have promised? He said more, with angry voice and excited gesture, but it was lost in a whirlwind of laughter and mocking exclamations. John Hobbs made several attempts to make himself heard above the din, and at last succeeded, saying, "'Mates, he is my son, a dreamer, a fool, and stark mad. Mind him not, he thinketh he is the king.' "'I am the king,' said Edward, turning toward him. "'As thou shalt know to thy cost in good time, thou hast confessed a murder.' thou shalt swing for it. Thou'lt betray me, thou, and I get my hands upon thee. Tut, tut, said the burly ruffler, interposing in time to save the king, and emphasizing this service by knocking Hobbs down with his fist. Hast respect for neither kings nor rufflers? And thou insult my presence so again, I'll hang thee up myself. Then he said to his majesty, Thou must make no threats against thy mates, lad, and thou must guard thy tongue from saying evil of them elsewhere. Be king, if it please thy mad humour, but be not harmful in it. Sink the title thou hast uttered, tis treason. We be bad men, in some few trifling ways, but none among us is so base as to be traitor to his king. We be loving and loyal hearts in that regard. Note if I speak truth. Now, altogether, long live Edward, King of England! Long live Edward, King of England! The response came with such a thunder-gust from the motley crew that the crazy building vibrated to the sound. The little king's face lighted with pleasure for an instant, and he slightly inclined his head and said with grave simplicity, "'I thank you, my good people.' 
This unexpected result threw the company into convulsions of merriment. When something like quiet was presently come again, the ruffler said, firmly, but with an accent of good nature, "'Drop it, boy! Tis not wise nor well. Humor thy fancy, if thou must, but choose some other title.' A tinker shrieked out a suggestion. "'Fufu the First! King of the Moon-Calves!' The title took at once. Every throat responded, and a roaring shout went up of, "'Long live Fufu the First! King of the Moon-Calves!' followed by hootings, catcalls, and peals of laughter. "'Hail him forth and crown him! Robe him! Scepter him! Throne him!' These and twenty other cries broke out at once, and almost before the poor little victim could draw a breath, he was crowned with a tin basin, robed in a tattered blanket, throned upon a barrel, and sceptered with the tinker's soldering iron. Then all flung themselves upon their knees about him, and sent up a chorus of ironical wailings and mocking supplications, whilst they swabbed their eyes with their soiled and ragged sleeves and aprons. "'Be gracious to us, O sweet king! Trample not upon thy beseeching worms, O noble majesty! Pity thy slaves, and comfort them with a royal kick! Cheer us, and warm us with thy gracious rays, O flaming sun of sovereignty! Sanctify the ground with the touch of thy foot, that we may eat the dirt and be ennobled. Deign to spit upon us, O sire, that our children's children may tell of thy princely condescension, and be proud and happy for ever. But the humorous tinker made the hit of the evening, and carried off the honours. Kneeling, he pretended to kiss the king's foot, and was indignantly spurned, whereupon he went about begging for a rag to paste over the place upon his face which had been touched by the foot, saying it must be preserved from contact with the vulgar air, and that he should make his fortune by going on the highway and exposing it to view at the rate of a hundred shillings a sight. He made himself so killingly funny that he was the envy and admiration of the whole mangy rabble. Tears of shame and indignation stood in the little monarch's eyes, and the thought in his heart was, had I offered them a deep wrong, they could not be more cruel. Yet have I proffered naught but to do them kindness, and it is thus they use me for it. End of chapter 17This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain Chapter 18 The Prince with the Tramps The troop of vagabonds turned out at early dawn, and set forward on their march. There was a lowering sky overhead, sloppy ground underfoot, and a winter chill in the air. All gaiety was gone from the company. Some were sullen and silent, some were irritable and petulant, none were gentle-humoured, all were thirsty. The ruffler put Jack in Hugo's charge, with some brief instructions, and commanded John Canty to keep away from him, and let him alone. He also warned Hugo not to be too rough with the lad. After a while the weather grew milder, and the clouds lifted somewhat. The troops ceased to shiver, and their spirits began to improve. They grew more and more cheerful, and finally began to chafe each other and insult passengers along the highway. This showed that they were awakening to an appreciation of life and its joys once more. The dread in which their sort was held was apparent in the fact that everybody gave them the road, and took their ribald insolences meekly, without venturing to talk back. 
They snatched linens from the hedges occasionally, in full view of the owners, who made no protest, but only seemed grateful that they did not take the hedges too. By and by they invaded a small farmhouse and made themselves at home, while the trembling farmer and his people swept the larder clean to furnish a breakfast for them. They chucked the housewife and her daughters under the chin whilst receiving the food from their hands, and made coarse jests about them, accompanied with insulting epithets and bursts of hoarse laughter. They threw bones and vegetables at the farmer and his sons, kept them dodging all the time, and applauded uproariously when a good hit was made. They ended by buttering the head of one of the daughters, who resented some of their familiarities. When they took their leave, they threatened to come back and burn the house over the heads of the family, if any report of their doings got to the ears of the authorities. About noon, after a long and weary tramp, the gang came to a halt behind a hedge on the outskirts of a considerable village. An hour was allowed for rest. Then the crew scattered themselves abroad to enter the village at different points to ply their various trades. Jack was sent with Hugo. They wandered hither and thither for some time, Hugo watching for opportunities to do a stroke of business, but finding none, so he finally said, "'I see not to steal. It is a paltry place. Wherefore we will beg.' "'We, forsooth, follow thy trade, it befits thee. But I will not beg.' "'Thou'lt not beg?' exclaimed Hugo, eyeing the king with surprise. "'Prithee, since when hast thou reformed?' "'What dost thou mean?' "'Mean? Hast thou not begged the streets of London all thy life?' "'I? Thou idiot!' "'Spare thy compliments. Thy stock will last the longer. Thy father says thou hast begged all thy days. Mayhap he lied. Peradventure you will even make so bold as to say he lied,' scoffed Hugo. "'Him you call my father?' Yes, he lied. Come, play not thy merry game of madman so far, mate. Use it for thy amusement, not thy hurt. And I tell him this, he will scorch thee finely for it. Save thyself the trouble, I will tell him. I like thy spirit, I do in truth, but I do not admire thy judgment. Bone-rackings and bastings be plenty enow in this life, without going out of one's way to invite them. But a truce to these matters. I believe your father. I doubt not he can lie. I doubt not he doth lie, upon occasion, for the best of us do that. But there is no occasion here. A wise man does not waste so good a commodity as lying for naught. But come, sith it is thy humour to give over begging, wherewithal shall we busy ourselves? With robbing kitchens?" the king said impatiently. "'Have done with this folly. You weary me!' Hugo replied with temper. "'Now, hark ye, mate! You will not beg, you will not rob. So be it. But I will tell you what you will do. You will play decoy whilst I beg. Refuse, and you think you may venture." The king was about to reply contemptuously, when Hugo said, interrupting, "'Peace! Here comes one with a kindly face. Now will I fall down in a fit. When the stranger runs to me, set you up a wail, and fall upon your knees, seeming to weep, then cry out as all the devils of misery were in your belly, and say, Oh, sir, it is my poor afflicted brother, and we be friendless. Oh, God's name, cast through your merciful eyes one pitiful look upon a sick, forsaken, and most miserable wretch. Bestow one little penny out of thy riches upon one smitten of God, and ready to perish. And mind you, keep you on wailing, and abate not till we bilk him of his penny, else shall you rue it. 
Then immediately Hugo began to moan and groan, and roll his eyes, and reel and totter about, and when the stranger was close at hand, down he sprawled before him with a shriek, and began to writhe and wallow in the dirt in seeming agony. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear!' cried the benevolent stranger. "'Oh, poor soul, poor soul, how he doth suffer! There, let me help thee up!' Oh, noble sir, forbear, and God love you for a princely gentleman, but it giveth me cruel pain to touch me when I am taken so. My brother there will tell you, your worship, how I am racked with anguish when these fits be upon me. A penny, dear sir, a penny, to buy a little food, then leave me to my sorrows. A penny? Thou shalt have three, thou hapless creature. And he fumbled in his pocket with nervous haste and got them out. There, poor lad! Take them, and most welcome. Now come hither, my boy, and help me carry thy stricken brother to yon house, where—' "'I am not his brother,' said the king, interrupting. "'What? Not his brother?' "'Oh, hear him!' groaned Hugo, then privately ground his teeth. "'He denies his own brother, and he with one foot in the grave.' "'Boy, thou art indeed hard of heart. If this is thy brother, for shame, and he scarce able to move a hand or a foot, if he is not thy brother, who is he then? A beggar and a thief. He has got your money, and has picked your pocket likewise. And thou wouldst do a healing miracle, lay thy staff over his shoulders, and trust providence for the rest. But Hugo did not tarry for the miracle. In a moment he was up and off like the wind, the gentleman following after, and raising the hue and cry lustily as he went. The king, breathing deep gratitude to heaven for his own release, fled in the opposite direction, and did not slacken his pace until he was out of harm's reach. He took the first road that offered, and soon put the village behind him. He hurried along, as briskly as he could, during several hours, keeping a nervous watch over his shoulder for pursuit. But his fears left him at last, and a grateful sense of security took their place. He recognized now that he was hungry, and also very tired. So he halted at a farmhouse but when he was about to speak, he was cut short and driven rudely away. His clothes were against him. He wandered on, wounded and indignant, and was resolved to put himself in the way of like treatment no more. But hunger is pride's master. So as the evening drew near, he made an attempt at another farmhouse. But here he fared worse than before, for he was called hard names and was promised a rest as a vagrant except he moved on promptly. The night came on, chilly and overcast and still the footsore monarch laboured slowly on. He was obliged to keep moving, for every time he sat down to rest he was soon penetrated to the bone with the cold. All his sensations and experiences as he moved through the solemn gloom and the empty vastness of the night were new and strange to him. At intervals he heard voices approach, pass by, and fade into silence, and as he saw nothing more of the bodies they belonged to than a sort of formless drifting blur, there was something spectral and uncanny about it all that made him shudder. Occasionally he caught the twinkle of a light, always far away, apparently, almost in another world. If he heard the tinkle of a sheep's bell, it was vague, distant, indistinct. The muffled lowing of the herds floated to him on the night wind, in vanishing cadences, a mournful sound. Now and then came the complaining howl of a dog, over viewless expanses of field and forest. All sounds were remote. They made the little king feel that all life and activity were far removed from him, and that he stood solitary, companionless, in the centre of a measureless solitude. He stumbled along through the gruesome fascination of this new experience, startled occasionally by the soft rustling of the dry leaves overhead, 
so like human whispers they seemed to sound, and by and by he came suddenly upon the freckled light of a tin lantern near at hand. He stepped back into the shadows and waited. The lantern stood by the open door of a barn. The king waited some time. There was no sound, and nobody stirring. He got so cold, standing still, and the hospitable farm looked so enticing, that at last he resolved to risk everything and enter. He started swiftly and stealthily, and just as he was crossing the threshold he heard voices behind him. He darted behind a cask, within the barn, and stooped down. Two farm laborers came in, bringing the lantern with them, and fell to work, talking meanwhile. Whilst they moved about with the light, the king made good use of his eyes, and took the bearings of what seemed to be a good-sized stall at the further end of the place, proposing to grope his way to it when he should be left to himself. He also noted the position of a pile of horse-blankets midway of the route, with the intent to levy upon them for the service of the Crown of England for one night. By and by the men finished, and went away, fastening the door behind them, and taking the lantern with them. The shivering king made for the blankets, with as good speed as the darkness would allow, gathered them up, and then groped his way safely to the stall. Of two of the blankets he made a bed, then covered himself with the remaining two. He was a glad monarch now, though the blankets were old and thin, and not quite warm enough, and besides gave out a pungent horsey odor that was almost suffocatingly powerful. Although the king was hungry and chilly, he was also so tired and so drowsy that these latter influences soon began to get the advantage of the former, and he presently dozed off into a state of semi-consciousness. Then, just as he was on the point of losing himself wholly, he distinctly felt something touch him. He was broad awake in a moment, and gasping for a breath. The cold horror of that mysterious touch in the dark almost made his heart stand still. He lay motionless and listened, scarcely breathing. But nothing stirred, and there was no sound. He continued to listen and wait during what seemed a long time. But still nothing stirred, and there was no sound. So he began to drop into a drowse once more at last, and all at once he felt that mysterious touch again. It was a grisly thing, this light touch from this noiseless and invisible presence. It made the boy sick with ghostly fears. What should he do? That was the question, but he did not know how to answer it. Should he leave these reasonably comfortable quarters and fly from this inscrutable horror? But fly whither? He could not get out of the barn, and the idea of scurrying blindly hither and thither in the dark, within the captivity of the four walls, with this phantom gliding after him, and visiting him with that soft hideous touch upon his cheek or shoulder at every turn, was intolerable. But to stay where he was, and endure this living death all night? Was that better? No. What then was there left to do? Ah, oh, there was but one course, and he knew it well. He must put out his hand and find that thing. It was easy to think this, but it was hard to brace himself up to try it. Three times he stretched his hand a little way out into the dark, gingerly, and snatched it suddenly back with a gasp, not because it had encountered anything, but because he had felt so sure it was just going to. But the fourth time he groped a little further, and his hand lightly swept against something soft and warm. This petrified him nearly with fright. His mind was in such a state that he could imagine the thing to be nothing else than a corpse, newly dead and still warm. He thought he would rather die than touch it again. But he thought this false thought, because he did not know the immortal strength of human curiosity. 
In no long time his hand was tremblingly groping again, against his judgment and without his consent, but groping persistently on just the same. It encountered a bunch of long hair. He shuddered, but followed up the hair and found what seemed to be a warm rope, followed up the rope and found an innocent calf. For the rope was not a rope at all, but the calf's tail. The king was cordially ashamed of himself for having gotten all that fright and misery out of so paltry a matter as a slumbering calf. But he need not have felt so about it, for it was not the calf that frightened him, but a dreadful non-existent something which the calf stood for. And any other boy in those old superstitious times would have acted and suffered just as he had done. The king was not only delighted to find that the creature was only a calf, but delighted to have the calf's company for he had been feeling so lonesome and friendless that the company and comradeship of even this humble animal was welcome, and he had been so buffeted, so rudely entreated by his own kind, that it was a real comfort to him to feel that he was at last in the society of a fellow-creature that had at least a soft heart and a gentle spirit, whatever loftier attributes might be lacking. So he resolved to waive rank and make friends with the calf. While stroking its sleek warm back, for it lay near him and within easy reach, it occurred to him that this calf might be utilized in more ways than one, whereupon he rearranged his bed, spreading it down close to the calf, then he cuddled himself up to the calf's back, drew the covers up and over himself and his friend, and in a minute or two was as warm and comfortable as he had ever been in the downy couches of the regal palace of Westminster. Pleasant thoughts came at once. Life took on a cheerfuller seeming. He was free of the bonds of servitude and crime, free of the companionship of base and brutal outlaws. He was warm, he was sheltered, in a word, he was happy. The night wind was rising, it swept by in fitful gusts that made the old barn quake and rattle. Then its forces died down at intervals, and went moaning and wailing around corners and projections. But it was all music to the king now that he was snug and comfortable. Let it blow and rage, let it batter and bang, let it moan and wail, he minded it not, he only enjoyed it. He merely snuggled closer to his friend, in a luxury of warm contentment, and drifted blissfully out of consciousness into a deep and dreamless sleep that was full of serenity and peace. The distant dogs howled, the melancholy kine complained, and the winds went on raging, whilst furious sheets of rain drove along the roof. But the majesty of England slept on, undisturbed, and the calf did the same, it being a simple creature, and not easily troubled by storms, or embarrassed by sleeping with a king. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 The Prince with the Peasants When the king awoke in the early morning, he found that a wet but thoughtful rat had crept into the place during the night, and made a cosy bed for itself in his bosom. Being disturbed now, it scampered away. The boy smiled and said, "'Poor fool! Why so fearful? I am as forlorn as thou. T'would be shame in me to hurt the helpless, who am myself so helpless. Moreover, I owe you thanks for a good omen. When a king has fallen so low that the very rats do make a bed of him, it surely meaneth that his fortunes be upon the turn, since it is plain he can no lower go.' He got up and stepped out of the stall, and just then he heard the sound of children's voices. The barn door opened, and a couple of little girls came in. As soon as they saw him, their talking and laughter ceased, and they stopped and stood still, gazing at him with strong curiosity. 
They presently began to whisper together. Then they approached nearer, and stopped again to gaze and whisper. By and by they gathered courage, and began to discuss him aloud. One said, "'He hath a comely face,' the other added, "'and pretty hair, but is ill-clothed enow, and how starved he looketh!' They came still nearer, sidling shyly around and about him, examining him minutely from all points, as if he were some strange new kind of animal. But warily and watchfully the while, as if they half feared he might be a sort of animal that would bite upon occasion. Finally they halted before him, holding each other's hands for protection, and took a good satisfying stare with their innocent eyes. Then one of them plucked up all her courage, and inquired with honest directness, "'Who art thou, boy?' "'I am the king,' was the grave answer. The children gave a little start, and their eyes spread themselves wide open and remained so during a speechless half-minute. Then curiosity broke the silence. "'The king? What king?' "'The king of England.' The children looked at each other, then at him, then at each other again, wonderingly, perplexedly. Then one said, "'Didst hear him, Marjorie? He saith he is the king. Can that be true?' How can it be else but true, Prissy? Would he say a lie? For look you, Prissy, and it were not true, it would be a lie. It surely would be. Now think on't. For all things that be not true be lies. Thou canst make naught else out of it." It was a good tight argument, without a leak in it anywhere, and it left Prissy's half-doubts not a leg to stand on. She considered a moment, then put the king upon his honour, with a simple remark, "'If thou art truly the king, then I believe thee. I am truly the king." This settled the matter. His Majesty's royalty was accepted without further question or discussion, and the two little girls began at once to inquire into how he came to be where he was, and how he came to be so unroyally clad, and whither he was bound, and all about his affairs. It was a mighty relief to him to pour out his troubles, where they would not be scoffed at or doubted. So he told his tale with feeling forgetting even his hunger for the time, and it was received with the deepest and tenderest sympathy by the gentle little maids. But when he got down to his latest experiences, and they learned how long he had been without food, they cut him short, and hurried him away to the farmhouse to find a breakfast for him. The king was cheerful and happy now, and said to himself, "'When I am come to mine own again, I will always honour little children, remembering how that these trusted me, and believed in me in my time of trouble.' whilst they that were older, and thought themselves wiser, mocked at me, and held me for a liar." The children's mother received the king kindly, and was full of pity, for his forlorn condition and apparently crazed intellect touched her womanly heart. She was a widow, and rather poor. Consequently, she had seen trouble enough to enable her to feel for the unfortunate. She imagined that the demented boy had wandered away from his friends or keepers, so she tried to find out whence he had come in order that she might take measures to return him. But all her references to neighbouring towns and villages, and all her inquiries in the same line, went for nothing. The boy's face, and his answers too, showed that the things she was talking of were not familiar to him. He spoke earnestly and simply about court matters, and broke down more than once when speaking of the late king, his father. But whenever the conversation changed to baser topics, he lost interest and became silent. The woman was mightily puzzled, but she did not give up, 
As she proceeded with her cooking, she set herself to contriving devices to surprise the boy into betraying his real secret. She talked about cattle. He showed no concern. Then about sheep. The same result. So her guess that he had been a shepherd-boy was an error. She talked about mills, and about weavers, tinkers, smiths, trades, and tradesmen of all sorts, and about bedlam, and jails, and charitable retreats. But no matter, she was baffled at all points. Not altogether, either, for she argued that she had narrowed the thing down to domestic service. Yes, she was sure she was on the right track now. He must have been a house-servant. So she led up to that. But the result was discouraging. The subject of sweeping appeared to weary him. Fire-building failed to stir him. Scrubbing and scouring awoke no enthusiasm. Then the good wife touched with a perishing hope, and rather as a matter of form, upon the subject of cooking. To her surprise and her vast delight, the king's face lighted at once. Ah, she had hunted him down at last, she thought, and she was right proud, too, of the devious shrewdness and tact which had accomplished it. Her tired tongue got a chance to rest now, for the king's, inspired by gnawing hunger and the fragrant smells that came from the sputtering pots and pans, turned itself loose, and delivered itself up to such an eloquent dissertation upon certain toothsome dishes, that within three minutes the woman said to herself, "'Of a truth I was right! He hath holpen in a kitchen!' Then he broadened his bill of fare, and discussed it with such appreciation and animation, that the good wife said to herself, "'Good lack! How can he know so many dishes, and so fine ones withal? For these belong only upon the tables of the rich and great. Ah, now I see, ragged outcast as he is, he must have served in the palace before his reason went astray. Yes, he must have helped in the very kitchen of the king himself. I will test him." Full of eagerness to prove her sagacity, she told the king to mind the cooking a moment, hinting that he might manufacture and add a dish or two if he chose. Then she went out of the room and gave her children a sign to follow after. The king muttered, "'Another English king had a commission like to this, in a bygone time. It is nothing against my dignity to undertake an office which the great Alfred stooped to assume. But I will try to better serve my trust than he, for he let the cakes burn.' The intent was good, but the performance was not answerable to it. For this king, like the other one, soon fell into deep thinkings concerning his vast affairs, and the same calamity resulted. The cookery got burned. The woman returned in time to save the breakfast from entire destruction, and she promptly brought the king out of his dreams with a brisk and cordial tongue-lashing. Then, seeing how troubled he was over his violated trust, she softened at once and was all goodness and gentleness toward him. The boy made a hearty and satisfying meal, and was greatly refreshed and gladdened by it. It was a meal which was distinguished by this curious feature, that rank was waived on both sides, yet neither recipient of the favour was aware that it had been extended. The good wife had intended to feed this young tramp with broken victuals in a corner, like any other tramp, or like a dog, but she was so remorseful for the scolding she had given him, that she did what she could to atone for it by allowing him to sit at the family table, and eat with his betters, on ostensible terms of equality with them, and the king on his side was so remorseful for having broken his trust, after the family had been so kind to him, that he forced himself to atone for it by humbling himself to the family level, instead of requiring the woman and her children to stand and wait upon him, while he occupied their table in the solitary state due to his birth and dignity. It does us all good to unbend sometimes, 
this good woman was made happy all the day long by the applause which she got out of herself for her magnanimous condescension to a tramp and the king was just as self-complacent over his gracious humility toward a humble peasant woman when breakfast was over the housewife told the king to wash up the dishes this command was a staggerer for a moment and the king came near rebelling but then he said to himself alfred the great watched the cakes doubtless he would have washed the dishes too therefore will i essay it he made a sufficiently poor job of it and to his surprise too for the cleaning of wooden spoons and trenchers had seemed an easy thing to do it was a tedious and troublesome piece of work but he finished it at last he was becoming impatient to get away on his journey now however he was not to lose this thrifty dame's society so easily she furnished him some little odds and ends of employment which he got through with after a fair fashion and with some credit then she set him and the little girls to paring some winter apples but he was so awkward at this service that she retired him from it and gave him a butcher-knife to grind afterward she kept him carding wool until he began to think he had laid the good king alfred about far enough in the shade for the present in the matter of showy menial heroisms that would read picturesquely in story-books and histories and so he was half-minded to resign and when just after the noonday dinner the good wife gave him a basket of kittens to drown he did resign at least he was just going to resign for he felt that he must draw the line somewhere and it seemed to him that to draw it at kitten drowning was about the right thing when there was an interruption the interruption was john canty with a peddler's pack on his back and hugo the king discovered these rascals approaching the front gate before they had had a chance to see him so he said nothing about drawing the line but took up his basket of kittens and stepped quietly out the back way without a word he left the creatures in an outhouse and hurried on into a narrow lane at the rear end of chapter 19